forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome back to the Inner Armor Podcast. I'm here as always with Dr. Royer. Hello, Doc. Hey, Greg. It's good to be with you today. Doc, we're going to go a different direction today. We've been talking an awful lot lately about sports, professional sports, the NFL, quarterbacks, all kinds of stuff that's really fun to talk about. But today we're going to talk about something that's a, a little bit more sobering. And that is something you and I have been kicking around as the tsunami of mental health disorders that threatens to overwhelm our yeah. society. And as we kind of get into that, I was reflecting a, that a tsunami in real life doesn't look like what most people think it looks like. Because we imagine this big wave, almost like the kind of wave that surfers surf. But when you look mm -hmm. at videos or whatnot of a tsunami, it just looks like the ocean is rising. It's almost like a flood, like the ocean is just flooding in. So you don't really see this big curling wave coming at you. The water along the coastline just keeps going up and up and up and up and up and nothing stops it. It just kind of overwhelms the land. And that's what we've been talking about, that mental health disorders in America and maybe in the developed world are sort of like a tsunami. We don't, we just sort of see them rising and rising and rising. We think surely it's going to stop and it doesn't stop. It just keeps on coming. So today I want to talk about that with you. And, and let's start by talking about what a mental health disorder is. I mean, what, what is that? And you are uniquely qualified to discuss this uh, as a doctor of neuropsychology. Yeah, I've spent my entire 30 years uh, working on uh, diagnostics. And uh, even though we do a lot of work in peak performance and athletics and what we call the ceiling, raising the ceiling, uh, most of my work has been uh, helping people that are kind of on the floor, where the floor is sinking away, uh, where they're dropping and dropping and dropping to the point that they can't function in life. So, you know, between the floor and the ceiling is this average functioning in life. And the people that are iconic and high performers, they're going above the ceiling, right? And they're doing things that are like, oh my goodness, what's that? But then you have Many, many, many people, way more uh, than the iconic uh, above the ceiling people, is you have the people that rather than staying in that kind of normal place between the ceiling and the floor, the floor is dropping to the point that they can't even function in normal life. Or if they do, uh, there's no joy in that. It's frustrating. They want to escape from that. And it's a very depressing, sad thing to be stuck in that constantly and to wonder if you're ever going to get out of that. We really at Inner Armor uh, are all about trying to do whatever we can to hold off the tsunami that we see coming. If you just start looking at the math of some of these things and the growth of what's happening in anxiety, probably the most leading thing uh, of all these different things, anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD, 
substance abuse. Um, these things are, there's no end in sight and they're just growing, growing, growing. And we're dealing with them the same way that we tried to deal with them 50, 60 years ago. Uh, no, nothing's changing innovative, right? Like I got an iPhone here, right? I can remember back when I had no cell phone, right? Just the, the communication world has, I can remember when there was no internet, right? I remember when, you know, people couldn't get hip surgery and be out in a day, right? It'd be months and months and months. I mean, we've seen so much innovation in our world. And that's what we talk about, how fast things are growing and moving. Well, I was saying, I have some of those stats uh, right in front of me. I, I did a little bit of looking around and according to mm-hmm. sort of a compilation or averaging of statistics from various sources like the National Institute of Mental Health, the American Psychiatric Association, the World Health Organization, uh, the CDC, here, here's some things to throw out. Anxiety disorders. 40% of adults will experience an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. That's basically half. Depression. 17% of adults will experience major depression major in their depression. lifetime. Substance abuse disorders. 15% of adults will experience substance abuse. Post-traumatic stress disorder, 6%. But that's a little deceptive because of the curve, like that tsunami rising. So from those same sources, it tells us that anxiety disorders have increased 20% in the last 15 years. And like that tsunami on the coast, it isn't, it just keeps going. So if it's gone up 20% by the last 15 years, who knows where it's going to be 15 years from now? Depression, right? The prevalence of major depression has increased by 15% in the last 15 years. Substance abuse increased by 10% over the last decade. PTSD going up 5, 10%. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but these things are just on this like rising curve. And as you and I talking before we started recording, a lot of that is what's diagnosed. Right. Those are the most severe where the floor is completely gone and I can't even function. I can't get to yeah. work. Or, or they've been anything. treated by somebody. But the question is, how many people are out there who've been undiagnosed? Or they're suffering under anxiety or depression or substance abuse, but they're sort of self-medicating, you know, with drugs, alcohol, whatever, other behaviors. So what we have in the statistics of diagnosis may be the tip of an iceberg in our society. Tell us though, doctor, what exactly is, define it for our our audience, what is a mental health disorder? How do you define that? Yeah, typically what we want to be looking at is some consistency of this over time. So in the DSM-5, which gives you kind of the criteria, you're looking for not just the symptoms where you're like an anxiety where you're avoiding things because of worries and you're uh, obsessing about things and you're restless in certain situations. But there's a, a period of time that this is disruptive and it's not particularly tied to maybe a situational event. You know, like you lose your job. Are you going to get depressed? Probably. Or 
have to do something that you don't want to do, like give a presentation in front of people? Are you going to be anxious? Yes. But these are things that you really can't tie anything particular to, and they last for long periods of time, like major depressive disorder, which again, like you said, this is on a continuum. There's a lot of people who are depressed who don't have major depressive disorder. The major depressive disorder takes you out of commission, you know, um, to kind of go with our ocean. It is like a tidal wave hits you and knocked you down and you can't get back up again for periods of weeks. Then you have this other thing called dysthymia, which is a form of depression, but it's more like three foot waves are just hitting you and you're stumbling, but yeah, you're getting your feet back on you. And then 30 seconds later, another three foot wave hits you and you stumble and you get back up again. And you're still able like to get to work. You know, you're still able to pay the bills. You're able to still function in life, but you've lost that joy or that fulfillment. And it just feels like everything's wearing on you. Well, there, that's not grouped in this number that you're giving of 17%. And that's where a lot of people are. But I think the real kind of takeaway is what are we doing to try to eradicate or deal with these things? And why so many other areas are going so fast, so forward, but yet we're stuck in this, how are we dealing with mental health? You know, I, you just don't see anything new and innovative. If you go to your doctor's office, you're going to get two options. You're going to get medication or therapy, both of which may be efficient, but we're going to get into this in a little bit. Okay. Is that all we can come up with, with everything else advancing like it is? This is, is kind of stuck. You know, in the late 80s, early 90s, Prozac came out. And it's about the time that drug companies were actually able to start advertising to general population. See, that doesn't happen in every country. In the United States, though, we see all the advertisements about drugs and, and those kind of things. But when Prozac came out, that was also the same time that drug companies started marketing to people versus just doctors, right? And the front page of, I think it was Newsweek, said, this medicine will eradicate, will get rid of depression in the next one to two decades. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's what it said, right? Like, this is going to solve our issue, 1990. It's getting worse. You're just giving some basic numbers on this. Since 1990, what's happened with depression at the pandemic and what happened during then? The biggest thing I deal with when I'm on college campuses, which we're on a lot of college campuses, is retention. Why retention? Is it because of learning disabilities? No, 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 no. Retention because these college students are getting depressed and anxious and have no energy to be able to complete their college degree. And these universities, they're kind of freaking out because they put all this money and energy to get these kids on campus and they're just losing them by the handful. They're just going, going, going. Where did they go, right? There's a problem here and we need to be part of the solution. And we're going to talk about 
how inner armor is, is part of that solution is we're reframing that and looking at how do we go about not just knee jerk reaction to these things, but creating resilience. So if I'm the next guy up with the depression, then I'm ready for it. Right. And that my body is resilient. So before we get into the solution, let's dive a little into the cause. Oh, through your 30 years of experience as a neuropsychologist, what causes these things? What causes these sorts of mental health disorders? Because as you and I have discussed before, the DSM, Diagnostic of... Uh, statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Statistical Manual yeah. of Mental Disorders, right? I mean, it's basically a catalog that psychiatrists or psychologists use that's, you know, a thousand pages long or whatever. And you go through and you say, hey this guy twitches or this guy is afraid of bats or this guy, you know, um, doesn't step on the cracks on the sidewalk or whatever it is. And you go to page you know, 357 and go, Hey, this guy has bat phobia or whatever, and you label it, but it doesn't really tell you why. So if we're really going to solve the problem, we have to understand what causes these problems. What would you say, doc? Yeah, I think it's uh, multifaceted, but Greg, you're taking us right where we need to go, which is upstream. Like I can look at behaviors, feelings, uh, reactions to things all day long, but I have to look upstream neurologically and physiologically to see why is this happening if I'm ever going to fix it. And fortunately and unfortunately, we, we live in a culture where we're really good at chemical reactions. Is like, if I want to change a behavior, if I want to make you focus right now, I can give you something to focus. You can actually go to the 7-Eleven and buy stuff to focus, you know? But we can also, if I can't sleep at night, right? I've been shown on TV many times in the middle of football games what I can take that will let me sleep at night. But am I really fixing the problem, right? So we have to look upstream to find out where these are coming from and then actually engage in a process of, of learning to focus, learning to deal with my depression, learning to be more resilient, learning to be less anxious, learning to sleep better, not chemically altering it. Now, where does that come from? That was your question. There's different ways to look at it, but sometimes we talk about exogenous or endogenous depression. Okay. So that there are things that are going to happen in our world that we have a certain level of resilience or tolerance to manage. And everybody's different in their resilience or tolerance. Some of that are things that you've learned throughout your life. Some of it's your support system around you. Some of it are genetics that you have, but that tolerance, you can have enough things going on externally in exogenous depression that you're not able to tolerate that or be resilient. Uh, for instance, a death, a loss of a job, uh, a move, kids leaving, you know, to go, you know, they're adults and the empty nest or all kinds of different things. You know, somebody not being able to have children, you know, over a period of time. There's things that can happen externally that go beyond your ability to tolerate that or cope with that. And when that break point happens, we can become anxious or depressed. Then there are genetic P 
pieces to depression, anxiety, substance abuse, that what you can have is these things that are passed down to us, just like hair color, eye color, height. Why wouldn't different psychological things be passed down? Uh, that can uh, easily happen, that we are more pre predisposed to anxiety or depression because our father was or our mother. Then there are things that can happen, you know, in the whole nurture nature argument that we're taught on how to respond to things that put us in a less of a tolerance place. Then there are things that can come to us that are toxic to our system that either through our diet or things that we're taking in or exposed to that can set our system off to various diseases and things that may create like we've talked about before, general adaptation syndrome. Great podcast on Hans Selye if you ever want to learn more about that. But that's that ability to be able to adapt and then hit a point where you break. And that's where these break points are what we see as anxiety, depression, substance abuse, those different things. And I would ask you to maybe reframe those to not just see those as negative, but what are those telling me about something upstream that I need to work on? See, that's the cool thing about your brain and body is it's not going to let you just have a free lunch. <laughs> it's always going to keep you in check and it's going to throw all kinds of things out there to say, hey, you need to deal with this. Like you're compromising your sleep. So I'm going to take away your energy so that you will sleep, right? Or I'm going to give you a migraine so that you get out of that situation and you turn off the lights and turn off the noise and you, you calm things down a little bit, right? So the, these are negative, but we can look at them as, wait a minute, that's telling me something about myself that I need to go repair upstream. And the cool thing about Inner Armor is we help you prepare for these things so that when they do come on, you know what to do. You know, it's not just open a pill bottle and I take this pill. I have no idea what it's doing to me, you know, but I think it makes me feel better. You know, 20% of the time it's placebo, but other times it is effective. But why? So we want to develop that inner armor so we can be ready for those things. Okay. So if those are some of the causes, what, what's driving the increases over time? You know, here we are saying over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, these, you know, curves, the right, you know, rising water overwhelming us, uh, 10%, 20%, 25% growth in these things. And is some of that generational, uh, what, what, what's going on that we're more anxious and depressed and addicted today than we were 20 years ago? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the first thing is to, to just point at something and say, this is what causes that, right? Like social media or internet or this or that. And I do think they all play into that in that the one thing that we do know that's decreased the most in the last hundred years is the quality of our sleep, quantity and quality. And hand in hand with every illness on the planet and not just mental illness, but illness is sleep deprivation and problems with our sleep. And we've become habituated to just awful sleep patterns. And we don't really know what it means to get 
a good eight and a half hours of sleep with high quality RAM, high quality deep. Uh, and so that's, that is a, a big issue. And the demands that we sometimes put on ourselves by being flooded with so much information and don't give ourselves a break to be present. But I'm probably not going to get a lot of friends from this, but the inadequacy of how we deal with it when it comes on board has to speak to how efficient we are at addressing it. So we all had the pandemic, right? We went through that and we found a solution or a way to manage it, right? Whether it, whatever your philosophy is on that, but the pandemic is gone for all intents and purposes, gone because we responded into a way that was constructive. You know, we learned about social distance. We learned about a variety of things to slow this thing down. Vaccines, no vaccines, whatever that was. But we brought in a system that worked and we saw the numbers decrease. I mean, everybody remembers seeing the charts, right? You saw it increase, increase, increase. And then all of a sudden we started to see the decline and we were all starting to take a deep breath because we're on the other side of it. Mental health issues, this, this surge, this tsunami, we're still looking at the graphs that we looked at for the pandemic that are rising, rising and rising. And I'm saying we don't have an adequate solution for that. There aren't enough trained professionals to just deal with this with counseling. And that's such a subjective thing. I could have six therapy doors that I walk through and behind every door is a different type of approach, a different quality of provider. And that's a very hard thing to quantify. And the medication has shown it to fall short. Does it help in some crisis situations? Yes. But does it really fix these upstream issues? So there's certain aspects of, I want to point to things like, you know, it's this thing in the food, you know, or the lack of, you know, grass fed this, or, you know, I don't want to find these things, but let's not put our head under the sand. Is the current way of addressing this actually sufficient enough? Does it need help? Not saying that there's not a place, but it's too, it's too top heavy. There's not enough to it to manage it or we would be seeing some improvement so let's talk about therapy particularly a little no pun intended talking therapy because when we talk about going to therapy or we use that term what does that in practical terms mean so i get an appointment with a therapist or a counselor to deal with my issues i'm told to show up at two o'clock on a certain afternoon I walk in, I sign the form, I walk into the counselor's office, and what happens? All kinds of things can happen. Like, there's all different types of therapists. There's all different types of therapy. So unless you've kind of asked ahead of time, you don't know if you're going to walk into a therapist's office where their method is to just let you talk and reflect back what you're saying, which is very uh, effective for processing certain things? Or is it somebody that's going to be more psychodynamic and 
you know, focus on more Freudian type of things? Are they Jungian? Are they cognitive behavioral? Are they interpersonal? Are they, uh, you know, I mean, you just keep going cognitive behavioral, all the different things, right? That you don't really know. And the average consumer's not too sure what's going to happen behind there. And sometimes that's part of the process is working through that. But sometimes it's not a, it doesn't stick. If you ask most people, like how many therapists before you actually found somebody that was impactful, a lot of people say it took, you know, four or five different people before I found somebody, right? That really, well, that's a lot of work to get there. And the benefit is worth that. But it's a system that it's very hard to do any mathematical formulas on that this is doing anything to thwart the tsunami or is capable of doing it. And I think that that isn't on the therapist as it is so much as it's like a one-stop shop. Let's let's take this example, okay? If I took the word pain, right? And I said, every time somebody says that they're in pain, they're going to see the orthopedic surgeon. We would say that's impossible. There's not enough orthopedic surgeons around on this planet, right? It just can't happen. The math doesn't work, right? So what have we done with the concept of pain when somebody's in pain? First, you do a few things. Take some Tylenol, some, you know, Advil, something, right? Uh, Or, you know, omega-3 or whatever you're doing, right? And then it's not working. So you call your primary doc, right? Primary doc says, oh, this doesn't sound like this is an emergency. Let's come in on Monday. Or why don't you do these things? And then, or it then goes up the chain. Hey, I need you to go to urgent care, right? You're still not at the orthopedic surgeon, you know, and you're in pain, right? Then uh, maybe the pain is at such a point that you have to go to the emergency room, right? And you go through there and you see the nurse, the ER doc. And then eventually somebody might say, hey, you need to see the orthopedic surgeon, this person who specializes in this thing, right? But if I took the whole bucket of pain, it's such a continuum, right? That there's no way this could be handled by just one specialty. But something that's more prevalent than pain, depression, it comes in all shapes and sizes. I mean, you could have the college student on the college campus that they failed their exam and they're depressed. Maybe rightly so, but are they depressed? You'd have the person who they just had a major death in their family and they're depressed. You have the person who has suffered with depression for six, seven years and they're depressed. This is all shapes and sizes. And our solution is you go to the therapist or you take this pill. We don't do very well at triaging is what I'm trying to say. Is we don't triage on the mental health side well enough. And so then the system can't handle that load. So if you do the math on psychiatrists in the United States and just severe mental illness in adults, we're not talking about adolescence. We're not talking about run-of-the-mill depression. We're not talking about run-of-the-mill of anxiety. If you just did the math on severe mental illness and number of psychiatrists, each psychiatrist would have to see about 2,500 patients 
That's, and we're not even scratching the surface of this tsunami that you're talking about. So they're the ones who are trained in how to use these medicines. And they're super overwhelmed because they get to see everybody with pain, right? And they probably said those last six appointments, maybe I shouldn't have seen that, but I did need to see this appointment seven and eight. So we don't triage it well. So what ends up happening is a lot of these people get seen by their primary. And I know this because I've worked in a hospital setting where I was a consultant for a lot of these physicians who are throwing their hands up like, I don't know what to do with this. I have a really close family member who's a physician. And that person was telling me that, I mean, they're just a general physician, right? That 60 to 70% of their patients are taking some type of psychotropic medicine and they're the one trying to manage it. And we're talking about the difference between personality disorders and this. And, and, and they're like, nobody ever really taught me all this stuff. I mean, we had a class in it, but that was about it. So there's a real issue here where, where we don't have the right gatekeepers. We don't have the right system set up to manage the load. That was a lot more than you probably wanted to hear. <laughs> no, once, that was fantastic. But, uh, I, another question I guess I'd have, and this goes to some conversations that you and I've had before, is whether or not psychology or psychiatry is adequate to address physiological or neurophysiological issues. So if I have something going on neurophysiologically that's affecting my autonomic nervous system, taking me out of my autonomic envelope or whatnot, and I go in and what I get is essentially talking therapy, is that downstream of my actual problem. And that's where, hey, I can give you a drug that will calm the system. But of course, then that's a crutch because whenever you remove the drug, it just comes right back. So could you talk a little bit about the difference maybe between neurophysiological causes versus purely psychological or psychiatric? Or is there a, a clear line between them? Yeah, I would say that the place where you're going to hit everything is upstream and with the brain. So the more optimal the brain is functioning and the autonomic nervous system, the more optimal what you're going to try to do downstream is going to work. A great example of this is the counseling program at Liberty University for their athletes. And we've had Neil, who's the main therapist there on our podcast, and he's going to be coming on in a few weeks too, again, because it's probably the most listened to podcast that we've had. But what we've been doing there is we've been coming alongside their student athletes and training them with inner armor program. So going through the inner armor matrix of precision, getting the visual skills under control so that the brain isn't experiencing so much stress, then working with power, which is how I fuel the system, and then working with focus and optimizing the autonomic nervous system upstream. So that when Neil goes to see his clients, he's able to have them in a more ideal state or what we call priming. That a client is primed now for Neil, who in this scenario is our orthopedic surgeon. Go Neil, right? Like, yes, that's what you're here to do. And I want to prep this client for you. 
you know, just like the, the prep team does for the surgeon before he comes in. And so inner armor is coming in and we're prepping the autonomic nervous system. So in the case of Neil's clients, they're ready to go. They're not fighting against, I'm running from a lion. Uh, I'm not breathing correctly. I can't focus. I don't have the right amount of power because I'm not breathing correctly. We've already taught them the biomechanics of breathing and how to get the right power. So they're ready for Neil. And when Neil comes back and says, it's taking half the time to get these people through therapy that in my career has taken twice as long. Or I have a whole subset that aren't even coming in because they're actually more resilient. So the normal stressors of life that are hitting them hasn't set them into this other level. So take our pain analogy earlier. Instead of the whole bucket of pain for Neil, he's actually, we're able to help refine that so that the ones who could actually manage some of this by just working on their breathing, their heart rate, their physiology, they don't hit that point where they're not resilient and they don't need to go into therapy. So we're helping Neil by decreasing his load and decreasing the amount of time because we're priming them. Neil is a microcosm of what needs to happen at our macro level is we need to be one helping sort out this large bucket and giving people basic resilience skills. And then when we do that, they're ready if they go into therapy. But two is a large group of them will never need to go into therapy because their bodies will do what they're supposed to do and be able to handle the water level because they're more resilient. Wow. So as we kind of wind down the episode here, what do you envision if the water keeps rising as a solution across this country to try to hold the water back or, or roll it back or be able to cope or help with, with this rise of mental health disorder? What, what would that look like? I think it first has to, to come with an acknowledgement that we're asking this subset of psychiatrists and therapists to take on such a huge volume that one, the numbers don't even meet, right? That this is not going to work out mathematically. Just a basic stats of this is not going to work out. So we have to realize that. It's kind of like if for the pandemic, they'd come out with this one solution but the number kept rising, what would we say about the solution? We're all so familiar with all these graphs, right? We would have said, uh, that's not working. We better get moving because we got to find the next solution, right? We're not doing that, right? So we have to first say, it's not that these things don't work. They have to be used correctly and triaged appropriately. And we need to, if we're really concerned about preventative medicine, which we're not very good at in the United States. We need to start teaching these things early on. We have programs, inner armor programs in elementary schools where we're teaching first and second graders how to breathe in such a way for their heart to be calm under pressure, teaching them biomechanics of breathing, teaching them how to focus in a way where they're not stressed but they're calm. These are things we should be, it should be part of education that we're teaching people how to become 
resilient because our biggest issue, you know, isn't can they get into college? It's can they stay in college? It, are they going to be mentally strong enough to manage that? Right. And that should be like class 101 that we're teaching kids is how to be resilient, how to sleep better, how to breathe in such a way, how to focus correctly. I mean, we're just missing the boat because we're not looking at it for what it really is, is that we're failing. You know, we're trying to put our fingers in the dike and the, the water is coming over and through all the holes and there aren't enough fingers to hold off the water. The dam is going to break. Wow. That's a pretty sobering thought. So for the listener out there, what can they do if either they feel overwhelmed by life, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, or they have a loved one who does, where can they turn for help? Well, they need to, we need to start the Inner Armor program with them yesterday. Okay. Like we're here and we have the program that walks you through how to build resilience in your brain and your body. Precision, power, focus. And then what we're going to do is we're going to shape that and refine that and sharpen it to build a resilient inner armor. They need to reach out to inner armor for themselves, for their family members, for whatever they do, whether it's a ceiling thing where they're trying to get above the ceiling or they've sunken through the floor and they need to get back up into a normal functioning. Inner Armor is here and ready to help you with that. Fantastic. So they can go to forgeinnerarmor.com. If they want to learn more, they can read the Forge Your Inner Armor book, which is available on Amazon in print, ebook, and audiobook formats. And reach out to Dr. Royer and his associates to learn more. So, Doc. Good luck with your travels this week, and we look forward to hearing from you again very soon. Okay, let's do it. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment? You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.